Isaac. I'm Sina, and you're about to enter the minds of two software product managers and friends who create new tech products for a living. We talk about technology, future, and everything else that sparks our curiosity. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the second episode of the Isaac and Sina podcast. How are you doing today, Sina? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long week. I'm a bit tired, but I'm excited to sit down with you again to work on this second episode. Yeah, I like how you've turned your living room into the <laughs> studio for this. Yeah, it's like inspired by the Joe Rogan podcast. <laughs> yeah, super cool. Last episode, I think we got about almost uh, more than 100 at this point. I think we got 100 listens to our podcast right when we are about to record this yeah. episode. <laughs> it's literally 100. Yeah, and the metrics are quite interesting as well. I think about 80 to 90% of you actually spend your time to finish the entire episode. And we do appreciate that. So please give us your feedback as we are trying to work out how can we do this better and give you a better listening experience. Yeah, did you ever... Could you ever think that we would have 100 people listening to our very first episode? No, I remember like talking to you before we recorded the first episode. And I think I mentioned that even if there's 10 to 50 <laughs> yeah. listeners, you know, that's a success. The expectation was there. And I think yeah, yeah. it's 10x of like what we usually want. Should we retire now in our peak? <laughs> we should stop doing this before we go downhill. Yeah. But if you're still listening, uh, thanks for listening to us. Today, we're going to talk a bit about innovation. I think this topic is something close to my heart and it's something that I think about uh, every day. So I think over the years, I've built many, many products and I've worked with different businesses and different founders. And I think one of the hardest part that I face in creating businesses and successful product is to figure out a way to innovate consistently. I think one of the foundational challenge of scaling a startup is to figure out an efficient engine to maximize the throughput that you can get with as little trash, burnout, and stagnation as much as possible. It's a pretty good topic to talk, talk about, and I know that like you have a great perspective on this. So yeah, let's get to it. The first thing that usually happens is not doing it consistently enough. So I, I join a company, or I will start a product, and have a pretty good idea and vision of what we could do. But that passion and that fire only lasted for, you know, a quarter or two and it just kind of dies down and the product just remains stagnant for a long period of time. The second reason why this is hard is because more, more often than not, we tend to create a new products or services with the cost of burning out your entire team. Yeah. I believe everyone that works in tech quite used to having crunch time right before your launch date. And it's not a healthy way to innovate because you can only do this so many times before you lose your entire team or worse, like you lose the passion to the problem and try to solve. They have different explanations of what your team should be doing to, uh, to contribute yep. to the business. Yeah, I, you know, the graph that comes to my mind is the one that, you know, you're super fast initially, but then you burn out and slow down versus yeah. the one that doesn't look like too chaotic and fast initially, but you're setting yourself up for some exponential growth. I think without changing the perception of what innovation is on the ground level is just really hard to do any kind of innovation. If you think about it in your own experience, the best and most amazing innovation is something that you never expect. Go back to the time where Steve Jobs just released the iPhone. It's so innovative because none of us I've ever thought that someone can design a phone this way. I was right? a child, but yeah, I was looking at, the, I was watching the presentation and I was like, damn, that was legit. That, that's why I set up to, to pursue this career. So I think Steve Jobs definitely played oh, a wow. big part in my life. 
But back to my point, good innovation tends to be something that we have never imagined before. So if your management or your company have created an innovation team, but have set up exactly what they want you to do, that's not innovation, right? That's yeah. an execution. You're totally. not setting an innovation team, but you're setting an execution team. I like that. It makes me think about like system because we're talking about not just innovation like once or twice, but like consistently innovating. And to me, that sounds like, you know, we would want to have a system for it. So that for some given inputs, you know, and some given set of processes, maybe not instructions, but processes, we'll be able to consistently get that desired output, which in, in, in this case is uh, innovation. And I mean, just like, you know, for growth hacking or for anything else where you want to repeat some good results and you get your system up. In this case, if we're talking about a system for innovation, you know, what would you say are the different pieces that form this system or this machine so that you can innovate consistently? When I think about the cadence of innovation, there's usually three to five things that comes into my mind. I think the first thing is building the right environment to foster a good innovation culture. The second is to have the ability to execute whatever ideas that you have. So to me, that's building a cross-functional team. Set up the stage for the problem-solving process. That's, that's one of the most important part, if not the most important things that you need to do in order to get the outcome that you want. Hmm. And of course, the way to innovate is to ship regularly. I think a lot of us force into this false perception of only ship perfect product. You can never achieve perfection unless you ship it regularly and get real feedback from the user right. and use those to inform what is the best for the next version. Last but not least is also to have a very proper framework to learn from the entire process so that every time when you repeat your innovation process, you are doing it with a better idea of how can I do better than my previous try? Cool. I'm personally most excited about the last part, which is learning, but I don't, I, I'm going to control myself. And, you know, let's start with the first one. When you say environment, how do you mean it? Do you mean like the physical environment at the office or, you know, company vibes and culture or maybe a bit of both? I think a good environment that fosters innovation is when every team member feels empowered to take risks. They can have candid discussion and brainstorm together to come up with a really creative solution. And the team have to feel that all those failure are just part of a learning process. It, it, it shouldn't have any negative consequences that come with failing. Does that mean that you're trying to say that if I'm part of that environment and I experiment something and it fails, I shouldn't think that like we have failed, but rather we learned something. Exactly. If you study and analyze the, the root cause of it, it's just telling you one extra reason of why this could work. That makes a lot of sense. I do think I get a lot of energy and influence from the environment that then allows me to kind of be in that right mindset. In your question, you also asked me if physical environment plays a part in this. And I think it definitely does, and especially the organization structure. Uh, I remember reading this idea from a Malvin Conway book, and he observed that how organization was structured would have a strong impact on any system that they created. So it's certainly one of the areas that I would like to explore in the future. I don't know too much about that right now, but it's quite interesting, especially now when people are moving out from the office to work virtually, uh, remotely nowadays. It'd be interesting to see how would that impact businesses and product that we will create in the future. That's pretty intriguing, actually. It reminds me of the thing I was telling you the other day that one of my colleagues who designed Mind Valley Office, because Mind Valley Office won the Inc. Magazine Award, and it's a super beautiful office. It's scientific about increasing productivity and all, all of that. And I was having a water cooler conversation with Luke, the person who designed it. It would be super cool to pick his brains on this as well at some point, maybe. 
we can have him on the podcast as a guest. Right? Yeah, we should. So, you know, when we talk about building the right environment, it seems to me that, yeah, you're taking into account a bit of like physical and also like organizational factors. Let's go a little bit deeper into that. What does it take to build a good environment for innovation? I think one of the things that foster innovation is to move from a creation mindset with a certain outcome in mind to be more experimental at the things that you do. Being experimental means trying a lot of different things. We know that a lot of scientific improvement comes from just trying different things, trying new, different concepts, trying different hypotheses, and make a lot of mistakes. If you look at the scientists around the world when they're doing scientific experiment, they don't feel demotivated because I'm going to fail, right? They actually feel excited. So I think in our case, if you're trying to solve a certain problem, it's good to write down all the different things that we can experiment quickly and try it out and and test out the hypothesis as fast as we can. So it helps us to have a better idea of whether this solution could work. And if, if it couldn't, it helps us to just move on to explore a different way and not get stuck on this for too long. So basically, the, the idea they're trying to say here is to maximize the speed of executing ideas and not minimize your risks when you try to innovate. It makes sense. So you want to try as many things as you can, as cheaply and as fast as you possibly can too. Mm -hmm. Like um, prototyping. Prototyping, yeah. As, like prototyping, um, you know, makes me think of this uh, rapid prototyping course that I took, that my CEO signed me up for. And I, and I want to recommend it to people listening as well. So it's not a paid ad. We're not getting paid to promote this, but it's a genuinely good online course that I think a lot of people will actually love. It's, I think it's called prototypethinking.live. That's a URL, prototypethinking.live. And the guy teaching it is... Tom Chi, he used to work at Google X, which is the innovation unit at Google. And he's the guy who worked on Google Glass and self-driving car, a bunch of other stuff. This is a pretty good course on rapid prototyping at a scale of an organization where he shares the framework that those guys created at Google and how they were basically trying about 100 prototypes per week with less than five engineers. And they kept doing this for... I think like weeks or months and the whole thing cost them like less than 70,000 US dollars. And I highly recommend that it. it's a, it, it is the way to go if you're thinking about prototyping. And if I'm not wrong, the price of the course is like $500 or $700 or something like that. Uh, but anyway, Isaac, back to your point about, you know, environments that multiply uh, innovation. You've talked about an environment that has an experimentation culture. What else? I think to create a good environment, you also need the right people. So it starts with hiring, right? You want to find people that share the same passion. You want them to be passionate about solving the same problem as you and your company. So if you have the right people, it makes everything a bit easier. I would encourage to look for people that share the same passion in problem solving, especially if, if, if their passion aligns, then it creates a really powerful team because they are not just doing it for the company, but they're also doing it for their own self because they feel that they are playing a part in growing the company and in pursuing whatever missions and problems they are set up to solve in their life. And with that, you get a lot more fire because they come with a fountain of ideas. Whereas if you hire someone that doesn't share the same interest to the problems that you're trying to solve, then it might take some time to kind of help them to understand the problem space that you're operating in before they can start contributing. So find a group of people that share the same passion and share the same ideas of how the world could be a better place with your product and services and put them in the same team. Yeah, I think once people kind of have that intrinsic motivation to do this is much easier so that you won't really have to come up with new motivations for them externally to want to direct them or guide them or encourage them. I won't start talking about motivation because I can just go on and on and on. We should talk about it in some other episode. But yeah, tell me more. So we have 
uh, experimentation in the environment. We have like the right people. Anything else that would go into that? It's very important to also have a space where they can safely contribute. Google had this research a few years ago that basically concluded that a high-performing team is usually the team with a high level of psychological safety, where everyone in the team would openly speak up their mind without worrying of criticism or having their idea being laughed by the other person in the team. Mm-hmm. So if you hire a bunch of very passionate and smart people in the same team, you want to make sure that they feel safe to work with each other. If people confine their ideas to their own mind, then you act- you're not actually refining those ideas and creating the best potential solution for whatever products and business they're trying to build. You're going to get the right person in the room, but you also want to give them the, the right chemistry <laughs> yeah, to be able to collaborate safely. And I think this is one of the harder things to learn about somebody doing like interviews and stuff, right? Because, I mean, I've had quite a journey personally learning to build psychological safety for other people. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously talkative. You know, I'm that guy who's loud and talkative and throwing all these ideas. And, you know, I, I remember clearly that I learned, I heard of this phrase for the first time last year uh, in... Q1 2019, you taught me, uh, you told me this book, Crucial Conversations. Uh, and that's where I learned about that thing, the term. And then I read about it more. And I, I think ever since I've become conscious about practicing it. So this is an intermission, right? This is not, I'm not so much talking about the organizational aspect of having psychological safety in a space because yet yeah, that is a must for sure. It's an intermission because it like having that conversation with you last year, when you were my manager, when you told me that, yeah, you know, we need that psychological safety in a meeting room. And I went on that mission of reading more and learning more about it. I started thinking, okay, this is, this is interesting. I'm going to these meeting rooms as a product manager where my job is to define problems but sometimes i'm also excited about wanting to kind of solve these problems and if i do too much at doing that the opportunity cost could be losing the ideas of a bunch of other people who stopped sharing just because i was too talkative so it makes perfect sense when you say that uh, as a factor for an innovative organization it makes perfect sense yeah back to your point yeah let's finish my point (laughs) (laughs) well back to your next point (laughs) i'm surprised that you remember me bringing up this idea with you last year and this is something that I still use to measure the performance of my product manager even to today. I think a good product manager should be someone that brings this psychological safety to every meetings that they are part of. Yeah. yeah, so we talk a lot about building the right environment. And I think when you have the right people in a room, what often suffer is the speed of making decisions because everyone have their own idea of what this thing should be. And from my experience, the decision-making process will sometimes take a toll if you are not conscious about it because you have, you're starting to have too much discussion. And as a startup, this is something that you could you cannot afford to do. So one of the concepts that I learned from speaking to the different leaders around the region is this, this idea called disagree and commit. I, I think I also brought it up to you when you were there last year. Yep. And I think this phrase saves a lot of time when it comes to decision-making without discouraging the team to contribute Disagreeing and voicing out is very important to foster innovation. This disagree and commit concept basically tell, like helps to make decisions quickly by telling the team that, hey, we might not come to the same agreement this time, but let's just move on with this first 
And I want you to support me to get this out and execute this perfectly. And if it works, then we have solved the problem. If it doesn't work, then I'm open to admit that I'm wrong and let's try your idea. By having this disagree and commit concept in the team, it helps save a lot of time because it, you can set a time frame on how long you want to make a certain decision and move on. Yeah, it, yeah, this is interesting. It's a good complement to the thing you said earlier about hiring the right people because on the one hand, you have people who are aligned with your mission and you know the bigger picture, they're really motivated and they give you know 120%. And at the same time, you want to have a balance where these people don't get too emotionally attached to every single solution, but rather you know be emotionally attached to that value that you want to add to users. So if in the end, you're not adding value to people. Okay, everybody who's in the team should be kind of pissed off, mm-hmm. uh, which is a good thing because then you're going to add value. But they sh- I think people should in particular be emotionally attached to uh, ideas. And yeah, this is one of the things that I also learned at Superhands. And I think it's a very important thing in product management specifically because you're exposed to a lot of problems. You're exposed to a lot of ideas and a lot of the ideas might be yours. Uh, and the last thing you want is kind of stressing on one idea and then be in a room that doesn't want that and now you're kind of pissed off and yeah yeah that's why having a high level of psychological safety is very important yeah some random question because i remember previous episode when we were talking about recession product management we did talk that sometimes the ceo or execs may want to ask the team to do things in a directives or and because of that maybe more common for the team to need to disagree and commit because now you're getting more directives from you know leadership do you think that's something Somebody asked me because, like recently, do you think that the pandemic may cause product teams to become more agreeable or is it just a phase where people are disagreeing more and committing and then after the pandemic is gone, you know, things will be kind of a little bit back to normal? Because this whole agreement, disagreement is a big part of the job, right? I don't think that's one answer to that question. One of the reasons why it sometimes feels that this pandemic have made the product team to be more agreeable is because the environment that we're operating in is a lot more complex than the past. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to being able to predict and have a good outlook of what's going to happen. If we can't find a good argument against what the founder is asking us to do, then in this case, it's better to disagree and commit because the downside is to not move fast enough and to suffer. Disagree and get fired. <laughs> <laughs> not, not really that. Yeah, kidding. You know, if you move too slow in this environment where everyone is moving fast and trying to figure out what's the new product market fit, then you might left behind. Yep. If you have no good reason to disagree with your founder, it's good to agree with them because... You trust them. You trust them, yeah. Yep. You know that they are doing this because they want to save the company yep. and not because of there's no there's very little self-motivation in this yep fair cool so let's do a quick recap of so far what we've talked about right we've talked about the environment that is best for innovation what's next i remember when you were talking your five things it was environment teams yeah the next thing that we should do after creating an environment is to build the right cross-functional team so in the industry, some call it the Scrum team, some call it the Spotify team, but to me, they are pretty much the same. You want to build a team that is cross-functional and is self-organizing. So what it means is they have to be responsible and given the autonomy to be able to deliver hmm. end-to-end outcomes. You don't want them to be relying on another team or another department in order to deliver because that is too slow. A good question to ask if you are thinking about building a good culture of innovation is one, is your current team self-organizing are they currently capable of end-to-end delivery 
can you give them a problem and can they solve it without having to rely on other departments? If the question is no, then that's probably the first thing that you have to solve. Last year when I was at Superhands, I can't remember if it was last year or the year before, but you guys had these mentorship sessions with, forgot the company name, that they would basically get like these CTOs and CPOs of companies in Silicon Valley to chat and you could jump on a call and get mentored by them. Something Academy, Scale Up Academy. I think so. Yeah, I think that. And on one of the calls that I got to join, CTO of WeWork was talking and he was talking about this and he was calling it full stack, full stack teams. And he was like, yeah, you want people who can do end to end. Yeah. That's one of the way to scale your innovation. If every team have to rely on you to make the make a decision, then you will eventually be a bottleneck. Yep. Right. So a very sustainable way to do this at scale is to give every team the autonomy to make their own decision. So that that means that they have to be able to decide what's the priority, how should they solve a certain problem without you actually breathing at their neck and telling them exactly how to solve a certain problem. The role of the management and the manager is to paint the picture, but to avoid telling your team exactly how you want the problem to be solved. I, I personally fall into the trap a lot of times because again, I'm so passionate about the problems that I'm trying to solve. It's very easy to say, hey, I want you to solve this certain problem, but then you also tell them that I want you to solve it this way. Yeah, what right? do you so, think about this solution? Yeah, what do you think about this solution? And, uh, and then like when they try to propose you some other solution, you always compared against your own. And that's not a healthy way to innovate. You might be right for a few times. Your idea might be the best, but then you are doing it at the cost of discouraging your team to innovate and not give them the, the, the room and the opportunity to flex their master to learn how to solve problems without your help. So again, it comes down to this not being scalable and you becoming the bottleneck and slowing down the entire innovation. To create a good cadence is to create a large amount of small cross-functional team that can be assigned individual goals and problems so that they can just go ahead and solve the problem in their own way. I have, I mean, so much to ask and add about cross-functional teams and goal setting and hiring. And since I'm, you know, generally super intrigued by building and scaling teams, uh, not an expert in it at all, but just very intrigued by, you know, to, to learn about it and to practice it at some scale. And I think one of it is because I grew up playing football semi-professionally two or three times a week for my entire childhood. Uh, so the concept of teams is always interesting to me. And also, I think it might be because building and scaling high-performing teams, to me, is one of the most valuable skills and experiences that, that the person can have in your lifetime. You know, you are uh, multiplying so many other people's efficiency and you basically become a good person for innovation and advancement of the human race but anyway because i'm so intensely interested in this stuff i don't want to sidetrack and talk too much about it i do think that we should probably do some episode dedicated to those stuff anyway so i do know that you also have thoughts about problem definitions and goal setting and constraints when i was defining the few ideas of of what we need to do to set up a good kind of innovation earlier in this episode I mentioned that this stage is probably one of the most important things that you need to do because, you know, if you set your team off for the wrong path, they will most likely go to the wrong place. But it's very important that you set the problem right. So that means telling them, hey, these are the problem we're trying to solve. Not the solution, but just the problem. And tell them why we are solving this problem. Why are we doing this right now? 
And how does this contribute to the larger picture of the company? What is the vision of this initiative and why is it so important? This gives your team a good idea of why we are doing this and give them enough information for them to also challenge and refine this concept of the problem. Spend some time to think about all this before you jump to the next stage. I think a lot of teams, including myself, have jumped the gun of not spending enough time to understand and it often comes back and bite us in some later <laughs> stage in a development. Once you set the problem stage, the, the next thing to do is to create goals. You want to be able to measure how your team is doing. Topic of you know goal setting is quite deep. You have your KPI, you have your OKR, and there's like different other methods to, to do goal setting. Uh, I think for this particular topic, I will just talk about a very high level of yeah. how you should set your goals. Your, your goal should always relate to the broader product strategy. So if you can't connect whatever you're doing right now to a comedy strategy, then you might need to stop and go back to the first problem. That's like, a bad go, and go back to the first defining stage. And essentially every team that are doing innovation should have a goal that clearly contributing to the overall business strategy. If there's no good connection, then stop what are you doing right now and bring your team and go back to the problem defining stage. A good way to measure whether a goal is good or not is it has to be easy to understand. It has to be actionable, achievable, and measurable. I'm going to spend the entire episode just to talk about goal setting itself, but this is kind of like what I would do on a very high level. Once you have your problem stage, once you have your goals, then the next thing is setting the constraint. This is quite interesting because conventional wisdom always suggests that to innovate, we must remove all the constraints, give your team unlimited budget, give your team no rules, give them the freedom to do whatever they want so that those innovation thinking will thrive. Yep. The problem with that is that's not a good reflection of the real world. You don't have unlimited resources. <laughs> yeah. You might not have the talent that you need to build the specific feature. I like to challenge this wisdom and suggest that we can innovate better by embracing constraint. I think the first constraint to draw is the amount of resources that they have. So that could be the time that they are given to solve a particular problem. It could be the human capital, how big is your team, who's in your team, what are the makeup, all their skills and experience, and also the fun. Nothing is free. If, if you are a slightly bigger company, sometimes your constraint might involve a certain process that you have to follow mm -hmm. because of maybe a legacy system that's very important to the current business that you can't really change. I want you to create a new solution, but the constraint is like this part of the system or this module cannot change. Damn it's, it. it's harder yeah. feature parity <laughs> but it's, it's the real world right it I is. think if you're working the banks or financial system that is probably one of the constraints that is guiding most of your innovation and I think last but not least is also whether there's a constraint in terms of the output maybe potentially like client deliverables or maybe partnership in that case you already know the exact outcome that you need to achieve at a given time yep. in this case there's not much room for you to play around with. So that will be the constraint. By drawing out the constraint early on in the entire innovation process, it helps your team to understand them. It actually forces them to be more creative when it comes to problem solving. And I personally think that this will help to bring your product to the user instead of having it staying in the R&D room forever. Yeah. Um as I'm listening to you saying these things, I'm well definitely comparing, you know, the company I work at and the things I hear from friends who work in different companies, the things I read and try to kind of think about examples of how are the organizations that I know doing 
with respect to these standards. And I totally want to keep talking about that. And something I want to share with people who are listening, because I think a few times in this podcast, we've said that, oh, we want to talk about this, but let's not do it this episode. And the audience may, be, they may think like, like, why do you say it then? You know, it's exciting. Why do you bring it up and then not talk about it? So this is a concern that I didn't know I could have in life until I started making podcasts that sometimes, yeah, we want to talk about these cool things, but then we realize that we are 50 minutes in. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, we do want to get to the other things that we want to talk about when it comes to cadence of innovation. But I really, 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 really have so much to talk about when it comes to teams and goal setting and constraints and motivations and things like that, just by looking at my own experience at work. Yeah, I have so much mistake to share. To we need a backlog. I mean, we have a backlog for a podcast. We need to put this in backlog. Yeah, we probably <laughs> can share this as a public backlog so you guys can work for your favorite episode. But yeah, I have my fair share of my mistake that I made because the constraint wasn't properly defined in the beginning. And as a startup, most of your constraints are just resources and time. You could have a really grand vision of what you want to solve, but because you did not properly define your time constraint, it's not, it's, it's unsolvable. We simply cannot continue and we have to pull the plot because we have to move on to work on something else. Yeah. But if we would have known about the constraint early on, we would have not chosen to pick up their task. Right. Yeah. It's like an upper and lower bound for this. The upper bound is a thing that's really like, pulling you which is that goal and then the lower bound is the thing that is pushing you which is this constraint yeah and it's in our case it's very interesting because mind valley is a company that didn't really have a lot of cross-functional teams because it didn't need to it was you know a traditional marketing company now becoming tech company trying to have cross-functional teams and it's very fascinating to look at those non-cross-functional teams and goals evolving into cross-functional collaboration and the sort of challenges we face there when it comes to uh problem definition when it comes to defining team i will just quickly say it and then we can probably talk about it in at length in another episode uh, but one of the challenges we were facing for some time was that we had a lot of legacy products some tech debt and almost every team was focused on those unreliability and fixing you know tech debt and these long-term fixes or migrations and things like that but we didn't have enough attention into prototyping and I think at some point we came to think that, okay, we need to, you know, just like that book that says thinking fast, thinking slow, we thought of building fast, building slow, that we need some people in the organization who are building for the long run, who are trying to make at that at our scale, which is we have like enterprise software. And we also need some people who are on a weekly basis building and testing and failing and succeeding and you know, on repeat to figure out what is the next best thing to do. So would definitely love to talk more about this. But I also know that, you have, I think, two more things to talk about. Let's move to the next one. The next one is just to launch it. You, you don't really know whether a certain idea will work or not unless you ship it. Traditionally, we always think that we should ship perfect product. But I think as a software company, the better way to launch a perfect product is through launching fast and learning through a short feedback loop. You want to get your products to your user hand and get them using it so that you can get like feedback from them so that you can inform all your future development and innovation based on proper feedback, not assumption. This might seem obvious, but a lot of times we don't do that. We yeah. build something and we add more scope into it because mm -hmm. we think that it's not perfect enough or this feature could be included in this version. And then we repeat this cycle and a one month cadence become two months, three months, and it comes forever. Yep. And so it's very easy to fall into that trap of not shipping or not launching it fast. You want to be shipping regularly. You can set the cadence, but the idea is to work within the time constraint and to ship when the time comes. 
at the startup, this is our single biggest structure advantage over the large giant incumbents in our market. We are not like Apple. We don't have the luxury to only launch two, three times a year. Cool. You know, you mentioned feedback loops and shorter loops that startups have that bigger companies may not have. Well, that's my favorite topic. Uh, Let's get to it. Let's talk about learning loops. I know this is one of your favorite topics and you even start a company just to focus on learning. Why not you tell everyone what is the best way to learn? We'd love to talk more about Learning Loop. It's a project that I started on the side. It's not a company. Well, yet. <laughs> learning Loop.org. My interest in learning, like creating feedback loops or learning loops comes partly from AI and machine learning. Uh, you and I have had a nice conversation about this as well. You know, the similarities of a learning organization and a machine learning model, because you, you kind of have your input and you have your model and there's an iteration. You're learning and learning and trying to converge uh, to have better results gradually and stay there. And so I think, yeah, in an organization learning from Tom Chi, you would want to have a system that allows you to take these guesstimates and assumptions and conjectures and turn them into actuals. Well, if they are valid. And if they're not actuals, then you want to know that fast as well in the cheapest and fastest way so that you won't put too much resources and attachment in it. Tom Chi's example, uh, I keep referring to him because, I mean, to me, he is the god of building learning organizations. He was saying that when they were creating Google Glass initially, they had this meeting with some of the smartest Google execs, including some of the co-founders. And there was this, the conversation suddenly got focused on what color should the backlight uh, of the Google Glass B and people were just throwing random things. One person saying it should be blue, one is saying it should be red and you know he was like some of the most intelligent people in the world spent two hours just talking about what color is best for the backlight of Google Glass and the reasoning was kind of funny as well. The person whose opinion won in the end who was uh, the highest paid person in the room was like we should pick red because in science fiction books it's always red and they said fine let's you know just try it out let's prototype it when it came to prototyping, they set up a super basic and scrappy version of it without any sort of crazy tech. And the first color they tested was red. And within the first two seconds of somebody putting it on, they realized this sucks. I can't see it. It hurts my eye. And something that Tom Chi said was that in prototyping, you want to stop thinking too much about what technology you want to use for this or what algorithms or what APIs or what whatever else hardware is available And instead, think only about that moment of service, that moment in which uh, the user will have a distinct experience on your product or on your platform, and try to think, how can I create that moment of service as fast as I can in this organization with whatever resources that they have so that we can learn? Is this idea truly a good idea or is it not a good idea? I think not every company is a learning organization, uh, but the ones that are definitely have an advantage over their competitors. And as you mentioned, I think it's more likely that startups are always a better learning loop than bigger companies because um, startups have stronger incentives. Whereas a big company, they may have something that already works great and is making so much money. And they're like, you know what, this is just going to work forever because it has for the past, I don't know, five or 10 or 20 years. Why should I want to learn anything new? But sadly, if they continue doing that, they're going to be disruptable. So I think learning loops is extremely important for startups, is extremely important for big companies. And although the scale might be very different and the numbers might be different, the principles are always similar. You're going to have some conjectures and assumptions and guesstimates. And if you invest too soon, you're probably going to be very wrong. So you need to try them first and focus on that moment of service and the user and learn from it. That's great. That's that's better than uh, what I can summarize. I know you're the best person when it comes to talk about learning. You're humble. (laughs) 
A legendary learning loop figure. <laughs> we just need an outro, right? I think a good way to measure a company with a healthy innovation culture is to measure the cadence of shipping. All your passion and your fire will slowly fade away. Building a startup is a marathon. Yeah. You, you can't have the fire that you have on your day one all the way to day 10. So you need to have a way to pass your fire around to your team. A very sustainable way to do this at scale is to create a large amount of small cross-functional team that can innovate consistently. Yeah. So this was on record which, and we're going to use it. <laughs> With that, people, we want to thank you for listening to the second episode of Isaac and Sina's podcast. Let us know what you think. Do follow us on Twitter. And of course, if you'd like to listen to our future podcast episodes, uh, please do subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform, whether it's iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anything else. We would love to have you as our audience again in the future. Thank you so much. Bye.